Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 85. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we hope everybody is staying safe out there and doing the best you can to stay healthy. I, you know what? I, this has become a time where people are really starting to hammer away at that Netflix queue and their watch list. Because if you are on social media at all, which if you, if you follow what your uh, screen usage tells you on your cell phone, I think we're doing nothing but being on social media, all you see are people binging shows. Yeah, we just blew through Shit's Creek. Yep. It was one that we had been wanting to see, and uh, now we're starting on Six Feet Under. Yeah, which I have never seen. You watched it in its first run. Yeah, I love Six Feet Under. So this has been one that I've been waiting on for a while. Something else I've been waiting on for a while, too, almost since the launch of Disney+, Plus, is the film we're going to talk about this week, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. And it, you know... It was something that was on my mind, but it was a loyal listener of ours, Kreider Gal. We've mentioned her on the show before um, because she's very um, interactive with us on our social media. Um, And so she had tweeted to us about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, requesting that we do this movie. And I was sort of happy that she did because part of the reason why I had it on my mental cue is because it's classic Disney cinema. It's a film that, at least in reputation, has transcended generations, but it's not a movie that I've seen more than maybe two or three times in my life. Same. The first time I had seen it was, or I was introduced to it because I had the Disney sing-along, you know, with the follow the bouncing ball, and uh, Beautiful Briny Sea was the number in the sing-along, and I wanted to see the rest of the movie, obviously, that is built around it. Right. Um... But I watched it the once, and it was, I can hardly say it was a staple of my childhood. It, I, it was a one and done for me. Yeah, we were, uh, we were more focused on, like, Mary Poppins. If you want to talk about a film that's sort of in the same vein, that was the movie that we watched a lot more. And actually, this movie sort of parallels with Mary Poppins a lot. Because other than David Tomlinson is in both films, other than the Sherman Brothers wrote the music for both films, they were sort of, at a time, back and forth between Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks because Walt Disney had been trying for so long to make Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers dragged that process out so long that they sort of shifted focus to Bedknobs and Broomsticks and then they focused uh, a shift focus back again to Mary Poppins. So they it, it sort of teeter-tottered between the two for quite some time. Right. This came out in 1971, but it had been in development since the early 60s. Right. So, and I know at one point, the Sherman Brothers had started writing music for Mary Poppins, and then they were told, start writing the music for Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and then when he felt he could acquire the rights to Mary Poppins, it was, okay, put a pause on Bedknobs and Broomsticks, go back to writing for Mary Poppins, and actually one of the songs, once we start breaking the music down, one of the songs in this film was written for Mary Poppins, got cut from that film, and was recycled for this. So the movies do parallel each other um, in an incredible fashion. 
Yeah, I mean, one of our favorite Disney films is Saving Mr. Banks, which I think has grown in popularity, especially with the introduction of Disney+. Plus. Um, that's the story of how Mary Poppins got made. And Disney, as a company, took a lot of liberty with that film. You know, they, they Disney-fied it. They, they made it a warm and fuzzy story when it wasn't really warm and fuzzy at all. The battle that Walt had with P.L. Travers to get the rights for Mary Poppins. Um, so I imagine that once that deal was finally a go, I can see where they just dropped everything. Um, and I mean, with the Sherman Brothers under contract anyway, you luckily had them at your disposal. But I imagine that must have been a lot of crazy back and forth for them in the creative process to have to shift gears I so mean, quickly. Listen, we've all been in a situation where we've been stuck with some headache that's been in limbo forever. And as soon as you start to see that you can make progress with that headache... You kind of just go full steam ahead with it. And that's what they did with Mary Poppins. And then quite a few years later, we landed on bed knobs and broomsticks. Um, and you have the plot for that film ready to go here. Yes, if you've never seen it. Um, There's a lot going on. I was going to say, just bear with me here because this does get confusing. In the 1940s, during World War II, the Nazis were threatening to invade England, which was known as the Blitz, so children were being evacuated from London for their safety. Among them were Charlie Carey and Paul Rollins, who are sent to Pepper and Jai and placed in the care of Eglantine Price, who makes it clear that this is just temporary. Miss Price doesn't have the time or interest to take care of children because she is in the process of completing her training to be a witch through a correspondence school so that she can help the war effort. After getting the children settled in that night, Miss Price takes out her broom and attempts flying for the first time. The children see her as they are sneaking out and attempting to escape back to London, but decide to stay and use what they just learned as a bargaining chip. The next morning at breakfast, Charlie blackmails Miss Price and she casts a traveling spell on a bed knob in exchange for their silence. Later, Miss Price receives a letter in the mail announcing her school's closure. She decides to put the traveling spell to the test and go to London where she'll seek out Professor Amelius Brown, who created her courses. Paul, who has supplied the bed knob, is the only one who can perform the spell, so the children accompany Miss Price back to the city on a bed. When they find Professor Brown, they learn that he is all smoke and mirrors, and even he is surprised Miss Price was able to get his spells to work. Miss Price demands to see the book where her courses came from so that she can learn the final spell for substitutionary locomotion. Professor Brown isn't cooperating, so Miss Price turns him into a rabbit. Once the spell wears off, Brown produces the book, which is missing the last few pages of the spell Miss Price needs. The group travels to Portobello Road and track down the bookman, who has the back end of the book. After comparing notes, they realize the spell was never in the book, but inscribed on a star-shaped medallion that belonged to a sorcerer named Astaroth. The bookman reveals the medallion may have been taken to the island of Nabumbu by a pack of wild animals given anthropomorphism by Astaroth. The bookman has spent years searching for the island and now doesn't believe it actually exists, but Paul knows exactly where to find it from his storybook. Miss Price, Professor Brown, and the children travel on the bed to Nabumbu and land in the lagoon. They are fished out by a bear and brought before King Leonidas, who rules the land and doesn't like people. Professor Brown sees that the king is wearing the medallion and agrees to act as a referee for a soccer match in hopes he will have the chance to take it while the king is distracted, not to mention save himself, Miss Price, and the children. The chaotic match ends in Leonidas's self-proclaimed victory, 
and Professor Brown cleverly swaps the medallion with his referee whistle as they leave. When the king realizes what has happened, he chases the group down and they narrowly escape on the bed. Back in Pepper and Jai, Miss Price wants to attempt the spell, but the medallion has disappeared because it couldn't travel between worlds. As it turns out, Paul has had the spell in his book the entire time. Miss Price successfully performs the spell for substitutionary locomotion when Jessica Hobday, who placed the children in her care, arrives and tells her that she has found someone else to house them, since this was only supposed to be temporary. Miss Price wants to keep the children, and they want to stay, requesting that Professor Brown stay as well to be their father. Clearly afraid of commitment, Professor Brown leaves to go back to London. That night, a platoon of Nazis land on the coast and take Miss Price and the children hostage as a scare tactic. Professor Brown has now realized he wants to be a part of this unconventional family and returns to the house only to find Miss Price and the children have been taken to the military museum while the Nazis operate out of her home. Professor Brown performs the rabbit spell on himself so he can escape the house and hops off to save Miss Price and the children. He convinces her to use substitutionary locomotion on the artifacts in the museum and Miss Price enchants the armor, leads them into battle, and drives away the Nazis. Miss Price's workshop was destroyed in the home invasion, so even though she is unable to practice witchcraft anymore, she is happy to have helped the war effort and can now focus on raising the children with Professor Brown until he enters the army and leaves. But they still have that bed knob. Yeah. Um, Nazis and machine guns are what open this film, and I can't say that there are many Disney films that open with Nazis and machine guns. No, and this is something that we're, you know, going to talk about because this is sort of a buzzy film right now because there's been talk about a stage play. There's been talk about a remake of yeah. it. Um, so that's obviously something that they're going to have to adjust. I don't think that they do, though, because that that's the entire premise of the film. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before that... All of the swastikas were obviously removed from the Indiana Jones show yeah. at Hollywood Studios, which, you know, even though Indiana Jones is. I mean, it's kind of a period piece. It, yeah, exactly. I understand why they did it, though, because, you know, if you're visiting the park with your family, that's not what you want to see. You don't want to be reminded of the Holocaust and such a horrible thing while you're on vacation. Right. But. That's something that's going to be very touchy should they move forward with the remake. They have no choice. It's built into the story. It's built into the story. Without this, you have no story. So there's no sense in remaking the film. I mean, obviously, they can still tell the story. They can still, you know, establish that they are Nazis if they wanted to leave the swastika out. Right. But... You still have to say Nazi. It, you this do. Is still what it is. But you don't need that opening number where the opening credits, first of all, are far too long, but everything yeah. is animated. They're they're drawn in the full uniform, so you can easily cut around that. Yeah. Um, I mean, at times. All right. Let, let's let's talk about the story here. Um I mean, they waste no time establishing that the war is on what's happening to the children as a result that they're being evacuated, even though it's very heavy subject matter. It is heavy subject matter. Um, and I, I that does lead an, it to an interesting question as we get towards the end of breaking down the story. I just want to drop that teaser there. 
Um, but yeah, so immediately you feel like the pacing of the film is going to be spot on because they waste no time in getting you right into the action. From there, does that pacing hold up? Uh, not really. Yeah, because even before we meet the children and Miss Price, you know, the the English, I think he's a colonel or something, mm -hmm. they're driving into town and the guy's painting over the sign. Right. And he says it's so that the Nazis can't find the town. Right. And, and I mean, I, I would believe that, I, I understand what it is that they're doing, but I'm sure that the Germans, when they invaded every country, could have figured out where to get to each town and how to get to each town, whether you painted over the signs or not. But I understand why they're doing it. It makes a lot of sense. It's a clever trick, but even when the Nazis do get there, they come by boat. Right. Um, because it is sort of a town by the sea. Um, but anyway, with all of that being said, they do launch right into it, and you meet Miss Price. Um, and... What I like about her introduction here, and what I sort of like about her throughout the story, not to jump too much into character here, but it's sort of impossible not to at least discuss this portion of her as a character because it is so integral in the story, is that she isn't very whimsical. Like, she's whimsical in that she's a witch that casts spells very poorly, mind you, because she's still learning. But I'm glad that they toned it back and that she didn't really want the children there and didn't have time for them because I feel like if they would have made her um, too embracing in terms of her relationship with the children, this would have teetered far more into Mary Poppins' territory. I agree with you. Yeah, when she goes to get the children, she's not even going to get them. She's going to get her broom right. from the mail. And this woman is just like, you have to take them. You have to help the war effort. The only thing is, I feel like she, for wanting to help the war effort with the witchcraft, I feel like, why wouldn't you be more inclined to, to help them? And exactly. to take them in? Yeah, I mean, I understand you don't want to be, you don't want to be made you know what I'm saying? In terms of you don't want to be outed as a witch and you want to focus all of your effort on your witchcraft for the war effort. But you're taking these children in to save them from the Nazis, which is a part of the war effort. So I get it, but it's it is a little sloppy. Yeah. I mean, if you're helping, who cares how you're doing it? Right. And you're that was kind of that was sort of the whole mantra with World War II. You know, and not just not just in Britain, but even here in the United States where you had the the guys were going off to war and the women were working in the factories. Right. right? Rosie the Riveter, right? We all it's it's so iconic. You you've seen it portrayed in history books and now in film they're making these period pieces. So everybody did do their part in donating scrap metal and, and everything that they did for the it was all for the war effort, right? Mm -hmm. like, that was the phrase for the war effort. And you know, saving these children, you're doing it in the name of the war effort. It's all for the greater good. Exactly. So who cares how you're doing it? Right. Um, but I I do like here. All right. So I I said I was going to wait until the end of the review, but I uh, of the of the story, but I really can't. Um, <laughs> other than that, 
I don't know that these children serve a purpose in this movie. Because they threaten to out her, and that's done mostly by, by Charles. Yeah, who is, who is so obnoxious, and that doesn't change the entire insufferable thing. brat. I hate him. I don't... Uh, he's a I character. don't want to say that about a child, but, like, I hate him. Yeah, I can't stand this kid. Yeah. The actor did a great job, but I cannot stand this character. There, I don't think there's ever really character growth with him. He's a brat at the start. He's a brat mostly at the finish. Um, there's just nothing there for me. But if you really think about it, they threaten to out her. Okay, so that she will take them back to London because they don't want to be in the countryside. They want to be back in London. So they use that as the bargaining chip. Fine. But after she was going to go to London anyway because she was going to go and try to track down Professor Brown to finish her training. She cast the knob on the or she cast the spell on the bed knob. Mm -hmm. And yes, Paul was the one that took control of the bed knob. She could have done that. She was not going to London to take the children back to protect her identity and oh by the way, found Professor Brown. Right. She was going to do that anyway. You can make the case for they use the spell because of the Nabubu book that Paul had, but it's not a book that Paul had the entire time. He found that where? At Professor Brown's. I don't think these children really serve a purpose in the movie. They they don't they don't add anything to her magic. This would have made a lot more sense if this was Paul's storybook because they, they made a case to say, we travel light. We don't bring a lot with mm -hmm. us. If that was the one worldly possession he wanted to bring with him and that held the key to the magic, they make sense in this film. They otherwise could have not been in the movie and you still could have had a movie with Price and Brown. Right, especially, and I agree with you 100%, because then the book wouldn't seem so random and so convenient that all of the answers are in there. If that was his one worldly possession that has traveled, and that's the th they never say it explicitly, but these kids are orphans. So if that was the one thing that he had and there was an emotional attachment to it, it would have served the story a lot better. Um I do agree with you, but to me, it falls apart for different reasons. Um, you do sort of need the children. I do agree with you, but I think it falls apart for different reasons. You're right. The kids really don't serve that much of a purpose to move the story forward. But because Paul supplies the bed knob and that's what she enchants, he's the only one who can work it. And I feel like that was really a device so that you could keep the children in this story. Um, for me, it falls apart, though, that you gave them a traveling spell. So who's to say that they couldn't just hop on the bed and go back to London themselves? Because that's what they wanted. That's that's how they were leaving to escape until they saw her. And then Charlie decided to use it as blackmail. And the other thing, too, is you can make the case for, well, they're not trained in witchcraft. 
correct, but this film is implying that anybody can be trained in the art of witchcraft. It's not something that you're born into. It's frozen. Born with the powers or cursed, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these films, it seems like witchcraft has been handed down generation, generation, generation in a bloodline. Here you can just take a college course and be a witch or a warlock. Well, especially because it turns out that it's a Ponzi scheme, the yeah. whole thing. And that's that's another thing that I don't really love about it. I like that witchcraft can be used to help the war effort, but I hate that it's all, you know, just smoke and mirrors. I feel like it would have been more effective almost if, like you said, it was a bloodline that was, you know, passed down to pass down, and she was sort of like um an inept witch mm -hmm. that she had the powers, but didn't necessarily know how to use them. See, I like the fact that it is a scheme and that it is a scam because I think that it adds enough comedy to what is otherwise fairly heavy subject matter. But I like in general when movies do this, I've talked about Fright Night on this show before. One of my favorite horror movies, kitschy is anything. But what I love about that movie, Roddy McDowell is in that movie and he's in this too. And he's totally wasted in this movie. Not wasted as an intoxicated. His talent is wasted in this movie. <laughs> um, he plays Peter Vincent, the vampire killer. Right. Who's an actor. But he kind of puts on the persona and puts it on as if he can do this in real life. And he gets exposed for being a fraud in Fright Night. I like when films do that. I like how tongue-in-cheek it is. So I think it makes sense here. I can live with the fact that Brown scammed everybody. I mean, he kind of half-scammed her because she actually is able to conduct magic, just not terribly well. See, that's the great twist in this movie because you do have that Wizard of Oz effect where they pull the curtain back right. on Professor Brown. But the fact that he knows that this is all a scheme and then she's like, well, here, I can actually do it. That's, that to me is actually really funny. And that, that sort of makes it more interesting. I also like the gag that they keep going back to with the rabbit. That the only thing that she can turn anybody into is a white rabbit. No, and that should have been beaten to death, but it's still funny. And especially because it does circle back around at the end when he realizes that the magic is real and he's going to have to use it and he's going to have to believe in himself. Yeah, I love the fact that because she just does not want to attach herself to anything, she has a pet cat, but she didn't even name it. So she let it keep its name that it quote unquote came with, which was Cosmic Creepers. That sounds like a witchy name. Like you're trying not to out yourself. You should have changed it. Mm -hmm. That thing, by the way, looks like Church from Pet Cemetery, but like after it comes back the first time. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty a raggedy. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I love when they get together. And she transforms Charlie into the rabbit the first time by accident. She never means to turn anything into a rabbit, but for whatever reason, it's the only thing that she can do and the spell never keeps. And uh, Cosmic Creepers chases him around the house. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because I think it's a good gag, but I also like that Charlie gets what's coming to him. Yeah, I think she was aiming to turn him into a toad. Yes. And then it ends up being a rabbit, but it works better. You're right, because then the cat can chase him around. The only problem with this is that it should have humbled Charlie, and it just never does. Yeah. So it's funny, but it serves no purpose other than being funny for that 
35 seconds that it's funny. It does nothing for him as a character. This is where he should have started his character arc a little bit, being afraid of her and or respecting her powers. Well, it's not which only, never happens. He not only doesn't respect her powers, but every time she says she's going to do something, he says she can't do it. She's a fraud. She's already turned you into a rabbit. I know that's not what you were supposed to be turned into. And that does set up the song The Age of Not Believing, and we'll discuss the soundtrack shortly here. But I mean, he, for the most part, he just never believes. It's like, how much do you need to see to be convinced that she can at least conduct a little bit of magic? It just, he never really comes around. He is a dead-end character. Right, because he's not even going to get on the bed with her. But that's another place where it starts to fall apart for me early on, is when they see her fly, there's there's not even a moment of disbelief. It's like, oh, she's a witch. How can we use that to our advantage? Exactly. Like They're not even that surprised by yeah. it. It's something where it's like they've seen it a hundred times over um, and they catch her because they're trying to sneak out of the house. Right. So, all right, that makes sense. They want nothing to do with being there. She wants nothing to do with having them there. This is where you would really have done yourself a service to set up the fact that they don't want each other, but boy, do they need each other. Exactly. And that never really happens. I mean, yes, they develop a relationship and a love for each other eventually, but that doesn't mean that you need them. Right. Right? You never actually needed them for anything. Um, When they do get on the bed and they fly to London and we get introduced to Professor Brown, I love the introduction that they give him. How he's walking around with his suitcase Great practical effect. Mm-hmm. Great practical effect. Where he's walking around with his little travel case that drops legs out of the bottom and opens up and flips into a booth that he can sell his goods from. He reminds me of Professor Marvel from The Wizard of Oz and uh, Doc... What is it? Do- is it Doc Brown in uh, in Pete's Dragon? Yeah, uh... Passamaquoddy. Yeah, Passamaquoddy. Is it Dr. I don't know if it's Dr. Brown. I can't remember, admittedly. I've only seen the movie maybe twice. You were raised on it. I hear Doc Brown and I think Back to the Future, but you're right. Maybe that's what's in my head right now. But, but Pete's Dragon came out, I think, six or seven years after this did. So in the lineage of Disney, you can see where... They took this character, they took this practical effect, and it influenced another character in a later movie. Because we know that Disney does like to recycle certain things and use it as an inspiration for building a character later on. Doc Terminus. Terminus. Duh. <laughs> That's it. Well, for, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for not remembering that. I have literally seen Pete's Dragon three times in my life. Twice when we reviewed the film and once when I was a kid. And that's it. Yeah, no. That that should have been on the top of my head. But the very, very similar characters in regards to how they enter the film and how they sort of conduct themselves when they get into the film. Right. But I like that whole setup. And I like the fact that he gets exposed for being a fraud 
even at the basic level where he can't even perform street magic to sell his garbage to the general public. I love that it goes one step further too with the sham when he takes them back to his quote unquote house. So he's basically taken over a mansion that's been abandoned. And the reason being is because there's an unexploded bomb in the front yard. That to me is hysterical. Yeah. And it just with, with very little, you know, he hasn't had that much screen time yet and you know, he's a fraud because you know, they've established that he's just basically regurgitating what he found in a book for his witchcraft courses. But to me, that's such a character moment that he's willing, just so he can live like a king, he'll put himself at risk with this bomb in the front yard. I like how they then move over to Portobello Road. I think that entire thing just reminds me of like Canal Street. Canal Street and, and Epcot. At the yeah. same time, because you're getting all those different cultures. Yeah. We'll talk more about that when we get into the music. Right. Um, and then from there, you go into the live action animation integration with that um, sodium vapor. It's the same technology that they used in Mary Poppins. Right. It Basically, this was green screen technology before we had green screen. And they would shoot the actors in front of a in front of the wall and then incorporate the animation. Right. Um, and then from there, they get pulled out of the water as the bear is fishing. Right. You went through the plot and then we're at the soccer game. Which and, goes on forever. And I suppose that when they ask him if he's equipped to referee the soccer game and he says well I was a captain for um for Hotspur and I played for Manchester United this is all a lie yeah I mean they've established that at this point that basically nothing that he says is true something that I thought was interesting here they're British actors and actresses the movie takes place in England but they don't at times integrate proper English language. And by that, I mean the, the English don't call it soccer. They call, they call it, football. it football. I understand Disney's an American company. This film was being released primarily in the United States. So in the United States, we call it soccer. And if you say football, you think the Green Bay Packers are about to play the Dallas Cowboys. So I get it, but... I think if you're trying to make something that is a period piece that is somewhat accurate in a certain country, I feel like you need to follow the terminology properly. Because even later, when Brown makes them dinner, when they go back to Price's house, and he goes, oh, I made sausage and mash. They call it bangers and mash. So I, I get it. You're, you're You're trying to accommodate an American audience. But moments like this are where this feels like a Walt era film, but you can see where I think Walt Disney would have fine tuned a lot of things in this movie that may have made it better. Yeah. I don't know if they're just placating to the American audience with this one. I'm wondering if that was an oversight because you're right. Walt would have never let that slide. Right. I mean, you could make the argument that Nabumbu is an American island or was or whatever. Um, 
And that's why they're referring to it as soccer. But just for the accuracy of the film overall, it should have been called football. Yeah, I think um, eventually Charlie does refer to it as football. I like in that scene where he is um, sort of the uh, very typical um, heckling fan, and he's even heckling Brown as the official. That I thought was very funny. That I thought was very accurate. That's about as much positive as I can say about Charlie (laughs) in this whole movie. Yeah, I mean, that's where it's like, I guess I can appreciate that he didn't really grow as a character because this was so fitting. Yeah. That he was just being nasty and obnoxious during the game. I want to jump to the scene I just talked about when they're back at Price's house and he's made them dinner. And then you have... Um, that other person that comes and knocks on the door, I forget her name because I don't care enough about her, to be honest with you. Jessica Hobday, I think. Sure. She could be Jessica Rabbit and it wouldn't make a difference <laughs> to me. But she would come and knock on the door and then she said that th- there's somebody else that's going to take the children away because Price didn't want them. And now Price is upset about it. Makes sense. The children are upset about it. Makes sense. Here's what does not make sense. The children say, well, we have this lovely house and we have a new father and they're talking about Brown. That's fine. I have no problem with them jumping to a conclusion. They're children. They're orphans. They don't have anything. And they're trying to establish that they don't want to lose what they have and that they have grown as characters, the children and Brown and Price. However... Price later says, or a Brown says to Price, well, I, I wonder if the children will even miss me now that I'm leaving. They just referred to you as their new father? So why would they attach themselves to you in a paternal relationship and then you wonder if they'd even care if you left? Right, because they out and out say father. It's it's not like they tell him you're a father figure towards us. Right. They just, you, they're just dad. He's, he's dad. That's what they say. We have a new dad. That's yeah. the line. Yeah. So I, I, I get it. You're trying to dramatize the situation. You're trying to dramatize the fact that he is now trying to leave. But that's sloppy screenwriting. You can't wonder if people are going to miss you when they've told you you're our new dad. I also don't see the point to him leaving because at this point you would think that there's been so much growth with him and he's obviously developed feelings for all of them as well. Um, But just, you know, he's not ready to make the commitment yet. And you can tell that by the life that he's led because he's lying, because he's scheming. Like, you know, he does give off that eternal bachelor. It, like Baloo. Yeah. There's a perfect comparable. Yeah. So I can kind of understand where he doesn't necessarily want to take on all of this responsibility, but it's like you're, you're already past that point. You're already yeah. so involved. You're, you know, I could see if they got back to the house and he drops them off and she's about to perform the spell for substitutionary locomotion. He's like, all right, you got this. See you later. Right. And he just wants to get back to being a phony. Right. You're you're way too involved now. And then 
going to the train station too is ridiculous because it's late at night. There's a war on and you're ready to sleep outside. Yeah. A lot of that scene just does not make sense. I mean, I understand you needed him to be outside to watch the Germans cut the telephone wire so that the townspeople could not communicate and could not warn that the Germans had invaded. I get it, but he could have just as easily gone out to smoke a pipe or do something else. It sure. didn't need to be that. No, and then he's sleeping on the vent, the bench, and then like this is all done as a voiceover when he's realizing that he wants to go back. I just think that's so ineffective. And then he has the visual where Price is dressed up like a Vegas showgirl, but like she's tiptoeing on the train tracks mm-hmm. as if it were a tightrope, and she's carrying a bunch of things. Like I, I get it. He now has an attraction to her, but that seems very much out of nowhere. Well, he did allude to it before when they were back at the house in the library. And once he realizes that she can actually do magic, he did want her to join his oh, show. That's right. that's right. Um, So it wasn't completely out of nowhere, but at the same time, it does kind of play down the attraction to her because he, it's like he still wants to use her for the show. Yes. Which is maybe how it started out and is not the case now. But to revert her back to the showgirl thing, it doesn't really show a lot of growth on his part. No. When they eventually get taken out of her home and they go to, I believe it was a church that was then being used as a center for distributing the orphan children. It was a museum. It was a museum. They have all the armor in that's there. That's right. That's right. Um, they go in, and I I think they were locked. Or maybe the Germans locked them in there. Um, and they're trying to push Paul through the window, which has metal bars on it. And they're saying, well, can we strip him down and grease him? Suck it in. Stop breathing. Let's just push you through so he can go get help. And they're like, oh, it's no use. You have turned people into rabbits temporarily over the course of this entire film. How did none of them think she could do that? I know that eventually that's how Brown sneaks back in. How did it not occur to any of them to do this? I know. I mean, you could make the argument they're in a stressful situation and not thinking, but Oh, no. You know why? Because, and this is something that bothers me the entire time. Every time she's wanted to do that spell, she has to break out her book. Because she can't remember it. But it does work to this scene because she can't remember how to turn him into a rabbit, and that's why Brown has to do it. Yeah, I guess. It's, again, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I suppose so. Because... It starts happening from when they're leaving Nabumbu with the lion. She she only remembers three of the words, so it's like a half rabbit. It's like a rabbit with a lion's tail. Right. And then it becomes worse once they get home. Yeah. Which also doesn't make sense because how did you pull off that whole substitutionary locomotion scene where, you know, you you aim to do Brown's shoes and instead you've got your nightgown and leggings and Charlie's pants and everything parading through that's now animated. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, Leading to one of the final scenes of the movie, 
where she is able to animate the armor, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that fights off the Nazis. I like the scene. Um, it's lighthearted enough um, because you, you, you do need to be lighthearted. At the end of the day, this is a family film. So it's kind of silly and it's funny, as funny as, as a German shooting a machine gun during World War II can be. Um, but just like every other scene in this movie, it drags on and it drags on and it drags on on and on and on and it just it ends eventually but most of the scenes in this movie you could have trimmed down a good three to five minutes and you probably could have trimmed the whole movie down 25 minutes to a half an hour easily this film was actually longer and they cut it for the premiere at radio city um, and then I think in 1996, I want to say they they released the full version. I don't think that's what we have on Disney Plus. It isn't. But there is a version out there that's like 141 minutes. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have anything else on the uh, story or the script before we move on to the characters here? Yeah, I do want to hit on. Uh, what you said about the last scene is that, you know, obviously they are trying to make it very lighthearted because, you know, it's heavy subject matter that the the Nazis were invading. But what bothers me about it is when they explain the invasion, once they get into Price's house, um, they were like, don't worry, this isn't the real thing. It's a decoy. And they're basically just saying that they're flexing their muscle in England. And, the way that the it's either the captain or the colonel explains it to them, you know, you're still a Nazi. You're still scary. And I get that they're as far as the film goes, they're trying to water this down. But like, I feel like that just would have been so effective if he was explaining it to one of his men as they're coming ashore. Like, here's what we're going to do. Like, don't really rough them up. This is not a real invasion. We're just doing this to scare the town so that the word carries that we have power over them, blah, blah, blah. And it would have played better if it was like, all right, here's the plan. Instead of explaining it, to Price and the kids, what they're doing. Well, let me ask you a series of questions here. Did these Germans arrive unannounced in this English town? Yes. Did they have loaded weapons? Yes. Did they fire those loaded weapons? Yes. Did they cut their means of communication? Yes. Okay, this is an invasion. This is not a practice. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're playing it off and they're saying this isn't the real thing, but uh, it is. sure is. It, it literally is. Now they may And have then been... they end up kidnapping them and taking them off anyway. Is... So they are kind of roughing them up. It is possible that they were invading and they were lying to Price so that she would just let them in. Not that she had a say in the matter because they kicked the door down and drew guns on her. So rather, whether she wanted them there or not, it didn't make a difference because here you are and you've already taken the home. Right, and stupid Charlie sort of escalates the situation because he starts arguing, oh, she want no, they're like, turn him into a rabbit, turn him into a toad, and she needs her book from the other room. So again, she still can't remember and that's where it does eventually get you to the final scene where where Brown has to turn into the rabbit. But Charlie goes to get her book and then the, the Nazis grab him and then he starts 
pushing back against them. So whether it was a real invasion or not, which it is because you're showing up on the shore with guns. Yeah. Um, he made it worse and he was the one who got them kicked out of the house where yeah. it was supposed to be like, you know, holding them hostage in their own home. He dragged them off because the, the captain was like, oh, you're distracting me. Get them out of here. Right. Anything else on the story here? No, I think I'm good. Are you sure? Because we could probably stretch this for another 20 minutes if you really want to. I well, mean, w- w- there's nothing to talk about, but let's stretch it because that's what the movie did in general. <laughs> well, I will say this because we we haven't hit on this yet. We have talked about how this was in development around the same time as Mary Poppins. Where we're finding fault with the film, I do think is fault with the film. However, this was also an adaptation of two different books. Right. One of them was Bonfire and ben, uh, uh, br- Broomstones. Broomsticks. Bonfire and Broomsticks. Right. And then the other one was uh, the Enchanted Bedknob or something like that. Or it, it was that, or then it had a different title of How to Be a Witch in Ten Easy Lessons or something like that. It was a story that had multiple titles, like Babes in Toyland and March of the Wooden Soldiers. Exactly. So they ended up acquiring the rights to it because they were so desperate for the rights for something because they couldn't get P.L. Travers to sign off on Mary Poppins. And they ended up combining both stories. And that's right. how we got it. So I think where we are finding faults may come from the roots of it. I've never read any of these books, so I can't say for sure. But I mean, I think most of our beef is with the construction of the film itself. Yeah. Because for the most part, there's a lot about this movie that I do like, like Angela Lansbury. Now, originally she was not the first choice for this role. They had offered the role to Julie Andrews Hmm. and Julie Andrews hemmed and hawed on it, was sort of lukewarm, wasn't really committing. So they offered the role to Angela Lansbury who signs on Julie Andrews then calls them again to see if the role has been cast. Cause I guess she had a change of heart and Disney had to explain to her, sorry, you're too late. We went ahead and cast Angela Lansbury. At the end of the day, I think this really worked out in Disney's favor because there's a lot about this, as we've pointed out, that parallels Mary Poppins, both being worked on at the same time, the same studio, the same songwriters. If you would have had Julie Andrews and David Tomlinson in both movies, this would have appeared to be a ripoff of Mary Poppins. Or it would have come off as like a desperate scramble. Right. Um, I thought, though, that they, Julie Andrews was in Camelot at the time and Walt sought her out. Unless maybe he was looking... That was for Mary Poppins. Right. I'm talking about after that movie, she got offered the role of Miss Price. I see. I'm See, I'm thinking they're both in development at the same time. No, this is now years later. Right, that's later. right, that's right. See, the other thing is, and I mean, granted it is years later, but Angela Lansbury is older. And I don't think if the roles were reversed, it would have worked. I think she would have been too old to play Mary Poppins. And I think Julie Andrews might have been too young to pull off this like old spinster witch. Right. 
and uh, David uh, David Tomlinson comes in um, to play. Well, let's let's talk about. Do we need to really talk about Price much more at this point? I feel like we've basically fleshed her out. I mean, Angela Lansbury's great. Um, she did a lot of physical comedy, which I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she had a stunt double for some of it, but, um, you know, when she's first getting on the broom, I was surprised like how much of that she actually did. Um, let me tell you something, by the way, her riding that broom in terms of practical effect and the way that she conducts herself when she's on it is probably the most accurate depiction of a witch trying to fly a broom and maybe the most realistic one that I have ever seen because you love Hocus Pocus, not my favorite movie. And I have often said, and even in Halloween Town, when Debbie Reynolds jumps on, and that's a made-for-TV movie, so you sort of forgive it for having a low budget, but I think I had even said on both of those episodes, when are they going to have a movie where a, where a witch riding a broom looks believable well they pulled it off in 1971 with angela lansbury <laughs> yeah they definitely did no but she was great um character wise though i said it before i i kind of wish this was the story of an inept witch that like haphazardly saves the war yeah david tomlinson plays professor uh brown and it is such a departure from mr banks but I love it. I absolutely love it. He was great casting. Again, he was not the first person they approached. I don't remember the name of the actor that they had approached. Um, Ron, Ron Woody? I don't think that's right, but it's something similar to that. Um, he wanted top bill on the film. He said he would only sign on if he was the top billing actor, and the company said no. It's Angela Lansbury, so he turned down the role, and this was the second choice, huh. and worked out very well. Because I think Tomlinson did a few movies for Disney. He was in The Love Bug, obviously, this and Mary Poppins. Um, but ultra-talented, very much like Angela Lansbury, does the physical comedy, song and dance entertainer, knocked it out of the park here. And I love them together. Yes. Not just because we're seeing Mrs. Potts dance with Mr. Banks, but um, I think they play off of each other very well. Yeah. Um, the kids, we kind of hit on Charlie's obnoxious. Um, actually, I liked Carrie. I think she was very endearing. Uh, she was very. Uh, she was a voice of reason, I think, for the kids. And I, I liked Paul. I liked that. He was very, I mean, he is, I think they said six years old, um, totally childish, but he has those bright eyes, very whimsical, interested and excited to go on an adventure. And I do like that the whole time he's sitting there saying, I have all of the answers. Why is nobody listening to me just because I'm the youngest? Yeah. We mentioned it earlier, and this isn't so much a gripe with the character as it is a gripe with the story. I wish that that book had been Paul's possession and that he had the emotional attachment to it because otherwise it just seems so convenient. It's like we just talked about a couple of weeks ago with Escape to Witch Mountain that she's having all of these visions and that's what's driving the story forward. And we don't know why other than that she's following the visions. And it's kind of the same thing with this book is that all the quote unquote answers are in this book. But like 
just looking at that medallion in a child's storybook, you would have thought then to put the pieces together that that's the one you need for the spell? Yeah, but the difference between this movie and Escape to Witch Mountain, to piggyback off of what you're talking about, that was not his worldly possession. It was something he just found. The star case was her worldly possession. It was the one thing she had from their home planet for her entire life. So that sets up better than this does. In this, in that case, yeah, absolutely. Um, I said it before and I will say it again. Roddy McDowell has <laughs> two or three lines in this movie. Extraordinary actor. His talent is 110% wasted. And it's not like... This was one of his first feature films. He had already been an established actor. He had already done Planet of the Apes, you know, that whole franchise. So I, when I saw that he had billing in this movie, I said, oh, I, I didn't know he was in this. I can't wait to see what he brings. And he brings nothing because they didn't give him anything to bring. He was very much a background character. He actually had an entire subplot and it was cut down. His screen time is about a minute long. That's how much they cut out of this movie. How How is it that they left so much and that's what they cut out? Because I would imagine that he was not cheap. Yeah. That seems like a gross waste of money. No, and they have to pay him whether whether they use it or not. Right. No, and they cut out, they cut out uh, three musical sequences too. Unbelievable. You want to talk about the music? Speaking sure. of musical sequences, this goes without saying, I love the Shermans. I love the Sherman brothers. While these songs to me are not the earworms that the songs from Mary Poppins are, I'm just going to say this now so that I do not repeat myself four or five times. The Sherman brothers write beautiful melody clever lyrics, a lot of tongue-in-cheek. And that's what most of these songs are. And I feel like you could make a movie with no dialogue, just made up of songs, and the Sherman Brothers could tell you an entire story. Absolutely. So I want to get that out of the way. I'm wondering how much they did contribute to the story because jumping ahead a little bit, substitutionary locomotion. You know... They mention it so many times in the movie that she needs the spell. And then when you finally get to that song, you know, it works so well and it rhymes. I'm wondering if they came up with the song first and then sprinkled that into the rest of the film. Yeah, it could be. Or if they were given the spell and this is what they came up with. But I don't know. That that song is so good. Yeah. The first song on the soundtrack, that's really what opens the film is the old home guard. To me, this is classic Disney sound. It's classic Sherman Brothers. It sounds like the Suffragette song from Mary Poppins. And they also remind me of um, the, the, the Admiral. Yeah, I was going to say the elephants, right, from uh, Jungle Book? Oh, no, I meant the Admiral and Mary Poppins as oh, well. Admiral but Boom. yes, oh my God, but yeah, for Jungle Book, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um. The next song is The Age of Not Believing, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. And rightfully so. The lyrics are incredible. The lyrics are great. I love the message of this movie. I think it's got a beautiful melody. Um, it is very trippy when the 
um, when the bed starts to fly for the first time, and and everything's just in like multiple colors, and it just the colors keep changing. Um, you can see why when we discuss the potential remake, who the interested director is and why. Uh, we'll talk <laughs> about that in a few minutes here, but really trippy stuff. But I absolutely love the uh, the song. It's it's incredible. Like it really does capture adolescence in that that weird age where you know you are starting to grow up and you know you still want to cling to your childhood but you can't because you are faced with too many adult issues right. especially in a time where these kids had to grow up so fast during the war and this is Angela Lansbury really singing she's singing to the children but specifically she's singing to Charlie and again, an opportunity where Charlie can grow as a character and it just no. never happens. Total waste. Um, Eglantine. This is a fun number between Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson, but it's not really my favorite tune in this movie. I feel like it's supposed to be, and it's just not. Like, it's really fun. They're in the library. He's swinging her around on the bookcase. Um... I wanted to see a little bit more choreography in there. I think that would have, you know, built it up a little bit more if they had danced together a little bit, other than him just pushing her on the ladder. Well, if you want to see choreography, Portobello Road is the next uh, musical number here. Um, I love the little world that they created. I said it before. It reminds me of, like, Canal Street meets It's a Small World. And it's... Very classic cinema to me. When you think about the golden age of cinema and you think about the golden age of the musicals with the singing in the rains of the world, right? Mm -hmm. This feels like a throwback of those movies. Right. You you get that back lot. You get the Streets of New York from Hollywood Studios vibes. Um and you get you get really great dancing. I love that they incorporate so many different cultures, not just in the dancing, but also in the music, because it is one song, but it transitions to a bunch of different genres. Um, the only thing that I don't like about this number is that there are transitions for seemingly no reason. Yes. I know that they did cut it down, but they slapped a dissolve just between the edits to cover it up. And to me, it would have been much more effective if you had either cheated it when you were shooting, like they turn a corner and it, it goes into the next little vignette of a different culture or what would have been far more impressive was if they did a one take wonder. Yeah. I mean, this is way too long to do a one take wonder on. I mean, you can, you can kind of cheat it. If they had shot it the right way where they are turning corners, that's where you can make the edits in case you need to stop and start. You know, there are ways of doing it, but I feel like it would have just looked a lot smoother because the dissolves take me right out of it. I think that when this eventually does make its way to the stage, because you talked about it before, they are making a stage adaptation of this. Um, I, f- I think this is really going to be a number that will uh, translate well to the stage. Absolutely. Yeah, this is going to be like your big takeaway number. It's going to be like your your Be Our Guest in Beauty and the Beast or your Under the Sea and Little Mermaid. 
It's going to be your crowd pleaser and it, it, it's going to be what you hate. It's going to be what they dance to when they come out and take their bows at the end. Yay. Beautiful Briny. This song sounds like something out of Finding Nemo, but it was originally written for Mary Poppins and it got cut. Really? Mary Poppins was supposed to spin a compass and send the children into the beautiful briny sea. And they cut the sequence from that film and they recycled it for this. It also seems like they recycle it in Mary Poppins Returns. When because they do, they do, do the bathtub. That? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I love the song and I love the sequence and it works so well in that film. But I'm wondering if that's probably something that was pulled from the books where they do an underwater scene and they manage to, you know, repurpose it. Obviously, when they did Bedknobs and Broomsticks, they didn't know Mary Poppins Returns was coming. But I like that they it still got used in Mary Poppins Returns and doesn't feel like a ripoff of this. Yeah. For me, what I don't love about the number... I love when they're dancing together. I think that's great. Um, Especially because it must have been very difficult to, you know, when we talked about Mary Poppins Returns, um, they had to shoot it in double time to create that slow motion underwater effect. So Emily Blunt is singing in double time because you're increasing the amount of frames to give it the slow motion. Um, I imagine they had to do the same thing here to get that you know like weightless underwater look and to have to do that like Emily Blunt wasn't part doing partner work when she had to do it so I can't even imagine how difficult this must have been for them to dance together on strings like that or they shot it in real time and they just knocked it out of the park with their um with the I'm not going to say the physical comedy but the way that they played it off to make it look very authentic as if they were under the water possibly i don't know i i like the live action integrated with the animation in this scene that sodium vapor in this scene in this scene yes it looks spectacular exactly in this scene moving on for a moment here I didn't get a chance to talk about this before because the sodium vapor looks great here. Where does it look really bad? Yep. In the soccer match. Yeah. First off, the bear that pulls them out of the water looks like they recycled Baloo and Little John again because a lot of scenes in Robin Hood are recycled animation cells from a jungle book or from the jungle book, I should say, and they just recolor the bear. And it is the same voice actor. So it comes off like a carbon copy because at times it is. Even King Leonides. Yeah, looks like Prince John. Yeah, with that square, even though he's a tiger and this is a lion, it's got that same squared off snout and jaw. Yeah. Um, But the live action integrated with the animation here is really bad. It's really bad. At times... David Tomlinson disappears off of screen. Um, he's got constant that constant glow around his body, mm-hmm. like it wasn't keyed out properly. Yep. And then they they try to cheat it when you know they're doing this herd of animals in the soccer match, and they they create the smoke, and then they cut to him 
lying on the ground after he's been trampled, but it's just not a smooth transition at all. And they're trying to use the smoke to cover it up, but it just doesn't work because the the camera like tilts down. It's just so weird. And this is, again, I think it has to do with it. Walt himself did not touch this film because that would have never flown with right. him. And the whole scene is way too long, like most of them are. I, we didn't get a chance to mention that before, but I wanted to throw that in there now. Um, but, you know, in, in Beautiful Briny, it does prove that they can achieve it and they pulled yeah. it off. I'm wondering if when they did this scene, if they were at the very end, they were just trying to gun it out, if they were up against the deadline, because there, there's no reason why it looked so good under Beautiful Briny and it looks so bad here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like you're watching two different movies. Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. Substitutionary locomotion. I It took me a few tries to write that down. Substitutionary locomotion. You want to talk about great effects. Yeah. All right, I talked about how Angela Lansbury is the only convincing witch flying a broom that I've ever seen in cinema. And I stand by that. But the practical effects in this scene are as good as you have seen in any movie. And it's where I get frustrated that now we are 50 years removed from this movie, just about, Mm -hmm. I think, right? 50? Yeah, 50 years. It'll be 50 years next year. We're 49 years removed from the release of this film. It drives me crazy because if they make this movie today, and they will, um, we'll talk about that in a minute, I really hope that the director, and if they go with this director, we might stand a chance. Because if it's anybody else, they're going to rely on CGI for everything. Look at what they were able to do 49 years ago and how good the, how good the practical effects are in this scene. There's no reason why in, in movies today that we are relying so much on pract- uh, so much on spe- special effects and CGI and how we are not relying on practical effects. I definitely agree with you. And for me, it's also like, thank God, seven years after Mary Poppins, it's still as good as they pulled it off in Spoonful of Sugar. Because that's sort of what this reminds me of more than anything else. Um, but that's one of those things like we were just talking about because Walt didn't touch this film. I'm glad they still got it right and it still looks good. Um because I think this was harder to do. Like Spoonful of Sugar had a lot more gimmicks because you could rig a set for doors yeah. to open. You can, you know, with the carpet bag in the beginning, you can, you know, feed things through the table. Like it's a lot easier to do because there were a lot more props. Here, it's articles of clothing and they're interacting with the actors. Yeah. It's, it's not as easy to do. No, but it looked great. And it worked in harmony, pun intended, with the song because this song is great. It's an earworm. This to me is going to be you. You thought that maybe Portobello Road is going to be the song in the in a stage adaptation. It will be this, but oddly enough, it's the last. It's it's one of the last songs in the movie. Yeah, like usually your earworm comes a lot earlier on you're absolutely right about that but that's what I was talking about before is that like it's a it's a chicken and egg scenario is did they write this song first or did you have it in the script and this is what they came up with because 
the kids and Mr. Brown are doing the incantation that's written on the, the medallion. And then Miss Price comes in and she starts, you know, casting the spell. But like they're both singing different lyrics and it melds together so well, even though they're singing on top of each other. It's such a great song. Yeah. Um, but I think that's about it in terms of the music here. We talked about animation and practical effects, so I think it's time for us to give our final synopsis and then we can talk about the potential remake. Sounds good. Um, I think this does need a remake. Um, I love the premise of this film. I think it's a brilliant concept that witchcraft can be used to help the war effort. Um, but I think this is just a case of great concept and bad execution. Um, not technically. I mean, the practical effects are great other than that one scene like we just talked about uh, with the incorporation of the animation at the island of Nabumbu. So with that being said, I'm really hoping that they don't resort to a lot of CGI should they remake it. I also hope that in a remake, they pay very close attention to the pacing. I think that is the biggest flaw with this movie is that scenes drag and it just pulls the whole thing down. I can overlook some of the issues that we had with the story that didn't make sense because ultimately this is a movie about witchcraft, so okay, fine. But the pacing absolutely destroys it. I agree. I think I like this movie more than you do. Um, my problem with it, as I pointed out before, is Charlie is terrible. I think that the kids serve almost zero purpose in the movie. I think you need to address that. The pacing, as you just said, is really bad. But I love the premise. I loved David Tomlinson and Angela Lansbury. I thought they were just so good. I love the music. I agree. I think it stands to be remade. And similar to you, I don't want to see a lot of CGI. I want to see practical effects. Which leads to the rumored director. Now, listen, this is all just a rumor. Nothing has been confirmed. And as far as we know, nothing has been discussed. No, and we don't like to perpetuate rumors on this show. But there has also been a plea made from this director. For years. Who is, is championing to get this done. This yeah. is now going back four or five years. And usually when he does something like this, he eventually gets what he wants. Now, at the same time that he made that plea, videos and photos of him and his daughter popped up at Disneyland, and I think he was quoted as saying he was doing research for a project that he was working on. The director that we are referring to is Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith has been quoted as saying, in an era where Disney is remaking everything, he wants to direct the remake of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. We will not read that quote, the tweet that it is in, because it is laced with profanity it's and sexual innuendo. He has colorful enthusiasm for um, the remake and for wanting to direct it. With all of that being said, look, people know him as... Silent Bob. But if you really break Kevin Smith down as a director, has he made dirty, filthy, raunchy comedy? Yes, he has. 
But then he's made a film like Chasing Amy. Which, and Jersey Girl. Uh, right. So he he is, I, I liken him to a Favreau, which he does not get the accolades that Favreau gets, but that's because Favreau plays the game. He plays the Hollywood game. Kevin Smith is a successful director who does not buy into the Hollywood BS and and is vocal about it. Kevin Smith has constantly given the finger to Hollywood and yet still has a successful career, and that is why he is my favorite. So I think he would be an outstanding director for this. I mean, look, you've got a guy that loves cinema. He loves the craft. He's not going to want a $250 million budget to make this movie. He's going to want to prove himself. He's going to want to show that he can remake the movie the right way. I think this is a guy that will rely on practical effects. I think this is a guy that loves... He's got so much passion behind the original film that I think he will do his due diligence. I think he will handle it with the TLC that he is a fan of cinema and this movie believes it deserves. And I actually think Kevin Smith remaking bed knobs and broomsticks is a match made in heaven. I 1000% agree with you. I mean, I, like I said, I'm biased because I am a huge fan of his. Um, but he definitely has all the tricks of the trade. And I mean, for some people who haven't seen, you know, the movies that aren't of the Jay and Silent Bob era that he's that he's known for that haven't that only know him for clerks. You have to go and watch the lesser known ones like Chasing Amy, like Jersey Girl. And he knows how to direct a movie with heart. He really does. And he can even handle musical numbers. He has proven it because he's done it in Clerks, too. Um, I also think that he would have a good grasp on the animation because at one point they did the Jay and Silent Bob animated series. Right. It did. I mean, that's the last thing that should be made into a Saturday morning cartoon for children, but he at least has a history with it. Um, no, I think he's great. And honestly, I, aside from having a really vested interest in wanting him to do it, I just hope that Tim Burton does not have a contractual obligation to Disney because can you imagine this? It's going to be... Yes, I can. Yeah. Miss Price is going to live in a windmill with a crooked tree on her property and then they're going to... And she's going to look like a witch. Yeah. Not unassuming. Helena Bonham Carter is going to play her, which yep. I actually don't hate. Um, but then they're going to they're gonna go underwater and it's going to be all CGI. And then they're going to go to Naboomba and it's going to be all CGI. And you are going to destroy the magic in this movie. Because I think this is a movie that needs to be whimsical. I think that it needs to have bright colors. It can't be washed out. It can't be pale. It can't be stylized. It can't be Burton. It, I will pound the table. I'll take anybody. I will take Tommy Wiseau before <laughs> I will take Tim Burton to make a remake of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. I will pound the table anybody but. Just like in nine days, and a lot of you who follow the show also follow me on Twitter, know that I'm pounding the table in nine days. Don't draft Justin Herbert, Miami Dolphins. I wanted that 
somewhere recorded because guess what's going to happen in nine days? He's going to be my quarterback. I'm pounding the table. Don't take him. And I'm going to pound the table. No, Tim Burton. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about it. Do you love the movie? Is this a movie that you grew up with? Who do you want to see in a remake? Who do you want to see direct a remake? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. Little bit of news this week. Starting with, I basically predicted this a week or so ago. You did. When I said, if AMC Movie Theaters is projecting to reopen in July, if at all, because there's a rumor that they're going to go out of business. How could Disney have a movie slated for a June release? And I'm talking about Soul. Soul has now been pushed back to November 20th. And Rayu? Raya. Raya, right? The Last Dragon? Is pushed to March 12th, 2021. I think... I think that might be opening up against Ghostbusters 3. Or maybe... Or did Ghostbusters get pushed to, like, March 21st? They're within a week or two of each other. Which, if if you're asking me, I think is bad planning on Disney's part. Um, Ghostbusters 3... Listen, it's not just coming from me as a Ghostbusters fan. This is one of the most... This was one of the most anticipated films of the year. And whether Disney wants to admit it or not, especially because they've gone with a mostly child cast for Ghostbusters 3. You are catering to the same audience. I think to release it either against or within a week or two of Ghostbusters 3 is a bad idea. And it's not like you didn't have enough notice. Ghostbusters pushed their release almost two weeks ago. I don't understand why studios do this. Well, I'm going to movie nerd on you a little bit, so bear with me here, because I've been saying it it's it's not just about the movie studios taking a bath on their release dates this year. No, we can't go to the movies. Yes, it is hurting them. The other problem is that nothing is in production right now. So you've not only destroyed 2020 slate, you're destroying 2021s because what is supposed to be being shot now and edited to be released next year is not happening. So... Each studio has to space out their big releases and work with what they got so that they can make back their box office dollars. I think in this case, you're not necessarily going up against Ghostbusters, but this is spring break. This is when kids are going to be off from school, I hope. Um, It's not happening this year, but you have to spread the wealth a little bit so that they have something to see when they are off from school on break. Here's the thing. I get that, but Disney needs to recoup a lot of money. Yeah. Like a lot of money. Yeah. Because Onward got pulled early, and Artemis Fowl's not getting released in theaters at all. That I'm still surprised about. The parks have been closed for weeks and will continue to be. Do you really want to release a movie which, best case scenario is number one at the box office for two weeks. I, I don't think this is the right date for this movie. 
You want to release it in the spring so that kids can see it on spring break? That's fine. But give yourself a week. Maybe an extra two weeks. You may be able to be number one at the box office three weeks to a month. Because regardless of when this movie is released, the minute that Ghostbusters movie gets dropped, you're gone. This is not Ghostbusters 2016 with Paul Feig. This is not a movie that's going to have a major drop-off between Friday and Saturday. This is not a movie that's going to open number four at the box office. It almost does not matter what... Star Wars. Maybe you put Star Wars up against Ghostbusters, and and, and that'll beat it, right? Right. I don't even know that if you released Indiana Jones, not that that's coming out next year anyway, at least I don't think so. I think that's been pushed to 2022. But even if you released Indiana Jones the same week, I don't think that beats Ghostbusters. So I, I think they are not giving themselves a big enough window to rule the box office and recoup the money that they are losing right now. Now, listen, I don't work in the industry. You do. But is what I'm saying making sense to an extent? It does, but I think they're probably not even worried about Ghostbusters because that's more... I mean, I, I get what you're saying. It is, you know, being aimed at kids. And I think, you know, Phil, casting Finn Wolfhard has a lot to do with that because people know him from Stranger Things. Uh, people know him from It, which, I mean, is not a kids movie. But I don't think they're necessarily worried about getting the kids in there i think it is placating to a built-in fan base and that's who's going to go see this movie and i don't think it's really even on disney's radar another bit of news that dropped this week the disney family sing-along is going to hit abc this thursday night they just announced actually a little while ago right before we recorded this that the entire cast of High School Musical, including Zac Efron, have signed on to do a performance at this, at, this, at this show that's going to be on ABC. Ariana Grande is performing. Michael Buble is performing. Demi Lovato is performing. This is very much a star-studded event. I know, and my show's got to go up against this on Thursday. Not for anything. Nothing against your show. You lose this week. I do. You I lose. do. And I would really love a season two. So thanks, Disney, for destroying my ratings. Um, but that's going to be this week. Um, I, this, I'm actually, I'm cautiously optimistic. Because, like, you, you just got the high school musical cast. Like, and now, they could have been sitting on this for three weeks and they just announced it today because they're trying to drum up interest in the hours. Because at this point, Less than well, less than forty eight hours away. You're hours from airing this show, mm -hmm. but after seeing what the Mickey ninety special was, and after seeing part of what Little Mermaid Live was, I'm looking forward to this. But I'm very cautiously optimistic about how they're going to pull this off in such a short window. In all seriousness, though, I am looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. It'll be fun. It's just something different. It's just something that's going to kind of bring everybody together and give you something to smile about for a change. No, and I kind of like that celebrities just don't care anymore. They're letting people into their homes. They, you know, they really have taken on this, we're all in this together mentality. I don't necessarily agree with things like 
Gal Gadot having a bunch of her friends sing Imagine instead of donating to a worthy cause. But, you know, to be fair, because people jumped all over her for that, they're trying to keep us entertained. Everybody's stuck. This is what they know how to do. This is what we pay them to do. So I do appreciate that they, you know, everybody's coming together. They're trying to, you know, even not necessarily with the technical know-how. I mean, Josh Gad, you know, they walked him through a whole audio setup just so he could voice Olaf and they could spit a short out for people to watch during this time. Right. Listen, at the end of the day, this is just me. This is not me launching into a rant. I don't care what these people think about politically. I don't care. You're entertainers. You're there to entertain. Is it nice when they use their platform for charity? Is it nice when they use their platform for something good? Yes. But I'm not going to attack Gal Gadot, an entertainer, for entertaining. And trying to bring a smile to people's faces. Not every person, whether you believe they should or not, needs to donate a million dollars to a charity. It's great when they do. It's nice when they get involved. But it's not a requirement. It's not a requirement. And I'm not going to chastise somebody because they didn't do enough. Because for some people, whether they can afford it or not, not my business. I'm not going to assume to know somebody's finances. When you're an entertainer and your go-to is to entertain when people need something, when they need an escape, that's why these people are famous. This is why you go to the movies. You go to escape. You go to be entertained. That's what these people are doing. So don't get mad at them when they do what they do. Don't be mad that Gal Gadot went and put this video out when half of the people complaining about it would have been the first people in the theater to see the new Wonder Woman movie on a Thursday release. Absolutely. Speaking of people... Stepping up, one more bit of news. Yeah, uh, Bob Iger has basically resumed all of his responsibility in the wake of coronavirus. Yes, he has basically taken the reins again. They said he's taken some CEO responsibility back. Let's call it what it is. Bob Iger is is Batman. He's the hero we need right now, and he is the CEO again. And I, I don't think a lot of people are upset about that. Look at that. You got. An episode, you managed to squeak in the Batman in this episode. And Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters. I had a good day. But yep, Iger's back. Iger is the superhero that we need right now in the Disney universe. I'm not saying in the world, but in, in, the, in the Disney box, he's who we need right now. And he's back. This man is never going to get a chance to retire. I know, poor guy. Let me ask you a question. When this whole thing is over and when he does eventually let the reins go again, is he handing them back to Chapik? I don't think so. Yeah, the fact that he took the reins back kind of makes me question the Chapik decision now. Yeah. Um, it, and, it doesn't bode well for him. And if you look at Disney stock prices, as we do every day because we're Disney stockholders... At the end of the day, whether you like Bob Chapik or, or not, um, Disney's a business. It's like anything else, and it's about the almighty dollar. And obviously not having the parks open and not having the films released because of coronavirus, that, uh, that does have an effect on the stock prices. But those prices were dipping 
before any of this happened. No, and I mean, Disney Plus is his baby. So, you know, despite my personal feelings with Bob Iger and, you know, what I've heard about how he's treating some of the cast members, I kind of understand why they want him at the helm of all of this because ultimately he gave us Disney Plus. He he knows how to conduct the business, so why not let him steer us through the storm? Well, he's an experienced CEO. For sure. He can he can figure this out yeah. and leave Disney in a better place than it would have been if the new CEO would have continued to sort of wade through these waters. But you guys can let us know what you think about the at least temporary return of Bob Iger. Let us know about how you feel in regards to the pushed uh, release dates or about uh, the Disney family sing-along this Thursday night. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to check out our social media, especially this week, because we will be live tweeting during the Disney Family sing-along on Thursday. Um, and we do have another streaming party coming up this Saturday night. I'm going to start it a little bit later. It's going to be a 9 o'clock start on Facebook Live, where we watch and discuss Waking Sleeping Beauty on Disney Plus. So make sure that you are following us on Facebook and that you have your notifications turned on so that when we go live, you know right away and we can all watch and discuss together. Stay home, stay safe. We'll see you guys this week on the social media. We will see you this week when we do the streaming party. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.